New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we continue our previews of the 2023 Women's World Cup. The last episode was our first preview of Group A. Uh, very much in the books. We did some uh, na- nickname giving. We did some manager and tactics previewing, some star players to watch, and some specific predicting. We'll be doing all of that again today for Group B which is Canada, Australia, Nigeria, and Ireland. Let's go through with our host to get acquainted, Joe Lowry. Hello, my friend. How are you feeling about your Canadian representation? I am, I'm thrilled to be previewing Canada. I'm excited to see what they can bring to the table. There's been a lot going on with Canada on the women's side. Well, just with Canada, period, right now on the soccer uh, yes. side. But it is most intense right now related to the women. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, and we have Ryan Bailey crossed out. David Goss previewing Australia. David, uh, you, you've had the Philippines. Now you've had, had Australia on that show. You predicted both of them to make the final. You still feeling optimistic about that one? Good day, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Good day, indeed. Uh, I will be previewing Nigeria, which leaves Graham Ruffin with the Irish. Uh, Graham, I feel like if this were Wales, you wouldn't be thrilled to have that assignment. No. Are you okay with Ireland? Yeah, I'm okay with Ireland. I'm actually quite excited about the World Cup chances. I mean, I'd prefer if they hadn't knocked Scotland out mm-hmm. of qualification. That would have been better. Um, that stings a little bit. But yeah, I'm looking forward to see how they do at this tournament. Well, I am looking forward to that and to today's previews. I always enjoy these because we get a good amount of information and get us hyped for the groups and the teams and the players. With that in mind, Joe, let's take us to the super optimistic and very happy Canadian camp. What is the Canadian national team's nickname? What's the nickname you're giving them? And what is their story so far? All right. So the nickname for Canada. Wait, wait, is this is this right? There's no nickname. Canada's women's team has no nickname. And it's so lame. Get on it. I know there's a lot going on right now with Canada soccer, but like we've got to bump this one up the to-do list is just a little why? bit. Uh, maybe this is one. why. Maybe all the problems stem from this particular issue. <laughs> they gave $50 million to Canada soccer business to come up with a nickname, <laughs> and they're still working on it. We'll, we'll see. We'll get, to it, guys. we'll get to it, afford the paper to put the list on, so they don't even have a to-do list. <laughs> Let's go. Piling on right from the jump. Here we go. So there's no nickname for Canada, but the TSS nickname So they get one now that they will not want to keep forever, but it is very relevant for this moment in time. My nickname for this Canada team is the compartmentalizers because that is what they have had to do. And that is what they will have to do at this World Cup because they're dealing with a bunch of stuff off the field. More on that in a second. Or or you can scroll up like half an inch with your finger in the TSS feed to find the big thing episode that we did about them last week and about what's going on right now with Canada soccer. But on the field, this team 
topped Group B at the CONCACAF W Championship last summer. That secured them automatic qualification to this World Cup. They went on to lose to the U.S. in that final back about a year ago now. They're currently seventh in both the FIFA rankings and the ELO ratings that I found online. So this is a good team. They have a lot of very, very talented players. I'm not convinced they're actually the seventh best team in the world, but we can talk more about that later on. The big story for this group, outside of how they got to this tournament, is really how the team can weather the off-field storm to succeed on the field and to make a real run at this World Cup. I, I, I so desperately wish that that wasn't the dominant discussion. I'm glad that we will talk about the soccer stuff and the players and what they'll do on the field. But the reality is, for far too many women's soccer players and national teams and, and people all over this country, all over the world, heading into this tournament... Like, the off-field stuff is still a very real discussion point. This team won the 2021 Olympic gold, but financial issues and unequal treatment have plagued Canada, and so many issues with Canada soccer uh, have been running all around, especially financial ones. Again, folks should go back and listen to the big thing to learn more about that. Players, as far as uh, this moment in time, are still in talks with the Federation to get a suitable labor agreement done. These these players are professionals. Like, they've, they've compartmentalized their whole life. I mean, we all do to an extent, but these... These people are doing this so much more than I ever have to on any daily basis. But this is a hard situation. You know, not being paid what you feel is fair. The negotiations are are taxing. It's not like everybody's really rowing in the same direction. And that can be draining and discouraging when you're a part of a project like a, a, a national soccer team. You know, can they lean into the adversity? Can they find ways to really leverage their difficult position and kind of play that as as something of an advantage on the field? Again, that shouldn't have to be the discussion. But that is a really big story around this Canada team. Can they defend their most recent massive tournament title, 2021 Olympic gold? And can they deal with all of the other nonsense that's happening around them right now? I think there's going to be a lot of nonsense happening around them when it comes to this group, or specifically the team that I'll be previewing. Uh, but until we talk about them, David Goss, let's talk about Australia. Nickname, your nickname, and their story so far. Uh, the nickname is the Matildas. Which is, I think, a fairly famous... David's favorite movie. Yep, yep. Yeah. Which <laughs> famous name. Apparently, pre-1995, they were just the female Socceroos. And then they got the name Matilda. It comes from the folk song Waltzing Matilda, which is like the unofficial anthem of Australia. Uh, these were the lyrics that I cut out. Waltzing Matilda, Waltzing Matilda. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. And he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled... You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. I read this song and I didn't understand 60% of the words in it. Like the use of that word in that place. So it's like old Australian slang. Taylor, I know you like love this song and it's like a huge part of your life. So if you have anything <laughs> that you want to add in on Something this. Something like that. I love and the band played Waltzing Matilda, which is the Pogue song that should be their national anthem. It is about how World War One was uh, maybe a bad idea and not great if you had to fight in it. I don't know how much that factored into it. I'm assuming Waltzing Matilda is like slang for hiking. Um, you're the crickets from the rest of yeah, the crew tells the, me that no one fully no. So I yeah. didn't research this, believe it or no, not. No, so yeah, the Matilda is. I believe the Matilda is the bag that the person is carrying when they are walking. So like the waltzing Matilda, I think is someone who's like coming through from town to town, and the Matilda is the bag that they carry. Again, don't understand any of the words that were used. Don't really care. Normally, when we do stuff like this, I'm like super interested by stuff. I was just like, mm, yeah, this is like a weird Australian song. That's not really going to affect my life much longer. Um, we're going to call them the Brekkies because right. quite famously, Australian cuisine, the best thing they make is breakfast. 
like uh, avocado toast. And because of time zones, all of the U.S. games are going to be. There's no blooming onion in breakfast. What wow. are you talking about? Um, all of their games are going to be breakfast games for a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. And so therefore, we're all going to celebrate by eating a lot of breakfast and uh, and stuff like that. They made it to this tournament by hosting this tournament. Uh, they are obviously auto qualifiers as host. They won out alongside New Zealand ahead of Colombia in the end was the only other nation that stayed all the way through the bidding process from 2019 through 2020. So they actually were selected in June of 2020. Um, We thought it would be Japan, but Japan ended up pulling out, I think, because of COVID pushing the Olympics and spending $18 billion that they didn't mean to um, on the Olympics. So that's how they got here. They obviously historically are a successful team, but mainly over the last seven years. They broke their attendance record back in 2021 when they hosted the U.S. for a two-game um, stretch. They lost that game. They then broke the attendance record in Newcastle in the second game. Uh, and they've had a really tough year and a half to two years. They lost in the quarterfinals in the Asian Cup to South Korea, which was a huge upset. They have lost a lot of games since then, but we'll get into sort of the rotation of the team and sort of the expectations, but they are coming off a high. They beat England most recently. They are the first team um, to beat England, I believe, since Wigman's taken over. And so that was a massive moment. But in the same window, they lost to Scotland, which was not a massive moment or impressive in any way, as Graham Are glows. we beating every team that you're previewing, Gas? Like, beat, beat the Philippines, beat Australia? Who's your, who's, have you got another team? No, you've just got the two. We're conquering everyone. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, that's, so Australia, they've basically just played friendlies over the last year or so or two years, but they've had a ton of success as well as a ton of popularity. Um, 2.2 million people watched their fourth place match or their semifinal match at the last Olympics. And as I said, they've broken a few attendance records and the expectation is there's going to be 80,000 people at their opener in Sydney. Uh, and so I think we'll get into it as it goes along, but it feels like this could be a really big moment for the sport and for the, the women's soccer scene in Australia. And this could be a breakthrough to what they hope on the field is next level, but that will be driven by the off field stuff. Uh, So that would be Australia. A lot of similarities when it comes to Nigeria, the team that I will be previewing in terms of this could be the opportunity for them to kind of break into new ground, raise their game, make that big impact they've never been able to make. I don't really think that's going to happen, and I'll explain why as we go. Uh, But uh, nickname for Nigeria would be the Super Falcons. The one I am giving them is the Continentals. I could not think of a better one. I may have used this before for another national team, but that would be because when it comes to African competitions, they are exceptionally good. Uh, Nigeria have won 11 uh, Cup of Nations since 1991. Uh, They had won the three most recent heading into last year's. Uh, which did not go as well. They've won two gold medals at the African Games in 2003 and 2007. So a long history of doing very well uh, in continental competitions. But then when you go to the Olympics, their best finishes the quarterfinals. When you go to the World Cup, which they have qualified for every single year since it started, this will be their eighth, I believe. Their 
one of very few, uh, one of only seven nations to qualify for every uh, Women's World Cup. So no small feat, but then they tend to only make it to the quarterfinals at best. In 26 games, they have four wins, three draws, 19 losses, and 63 goals against, scoring just 20 in that time in the World Cup. So they don't tend to break to that next level. And I do not think that they're going to do that this time round, because starting with that most recent Africa Cup of Nations, which is the qualifier for the Women's World Cup, they finished fourth. Uh, They went to the third place game and lost that one, but they were eliminated by Morocco in the semifinals. Uh, Equatorial Guinea also eliminated pretty early on in that tournament, which marked the first time that Nigeria or Equatorial Guinea were not in the final of an African Cup of Nations. So that's maybe good for the Confederation, that there's growth and other teams are developing. But for Nigeria, they lost to Morocco. They lose the fourth-place game to Zambia. They still qualify because the top four go. But since then, they lost to the United States twice, Japan, Mexico, then Colombia. Better results recently against Costa Rica, Haiti, and New Zealand, ahead of the World Cup. But there are lots of questions about this team, lots of issues with the locker room questions about the manager. It is an unsettled team heading into this tournament, and I am not particularly optimistic about their chances, uh, but we'll talk more about that when we get to their coach. For now, Graham, uh, why don't you round out the four with uh, your team, their nickname, your nickname for them, and their story so far. Okay, so the Republic of Ireland, they go by the nickname The Girls in Green, I think that's fairly self-explanatory. The men's team are called the boys in green. The green. The women's team are called the girls in green. They're Ireland. They play in green. You get it. As for a TSS nickname, how about Jack Charlton's 1994 Republic of Ireland team reincarnated? It rolls off the tongue, and I'm sure Joe's got lots of thoughts on this. For anyone who doesn't remember the 1994 World Cup, I personally watched every single match. Uh, Ireland were known for being... Rough and ready, shall we say. A little bit direct, a, a bit one-dimensional. One dimensional. However, that team in 19, 1994 achieved a great deal of success. So I'll explain a bit later on, on where those parallels are. This particular Ireland team, I think, has a, a little bit more about them than, than Jack Charlton's team in terms of their technical ability. But nonetheless, there's a comparison there. This will be the Republic of Ireland's first ever Women's World Cup. They've never played at one of these things before in the 50-year existence of the Ireland women's national team. So this is a big deal for a country that cares a, a lot about football. Ireland is, is, is a soccer nation, and this is the first time they've been at this level. I actually watched the Republic of, Republic of Ireland qualify for this tournament live on TV because they beat Scotland at Hampden Park in a playoff to do it. That was a little bit of a surprise result. I don't think I'm being too biased there on individual talent. Um, maybe Ireland were the underdogs, but Ireland had a better game plan, and they executed it well. So I can't, I can't begrudge them uh, at all being at this tournament. He says through uh, gritted, gritted teeth that I do that convincingly there. Um, if listeners don't remember this match, they might remember how Ireland celebrated this match. They sang a pro-IRA song, filmed themselves doing it, and then posted it to Instagram. So that was a thing that happened. Um, there had been some hints that Ireland were getting closer to a major tournament in recent years. They finished comfortably in second place in their qualifying um, group for this tournament, which then put them through to the playoffs. But before that... Ireland finished third 
in their Euro 2022 qualifying group, group, just two points behind second. And they also finished third in their 2019 World Cup qualifying group. So this is a team that has been building towards this moment over a number of years. They have Australia in their opening fixture, as Gas mentioned, 80,000 tickets sold, co-hosts. Um, one of the, I don't, I wouldn't say one of the favourites, but one of the stronger nations in this tournament, Australia. That match was actually moved due to demand. So that makes clear the level that Ireland are now at. And it's about whether they can lift themselves to that level. Uh, and an important question before I take us to break, uh, as we established in the Group A preview, we do always need to acknowledge any connections to Arizona. Uh, do we have yes. any so far that any of you all have noticed? Uh, not that I can see. Okay. There's a Florida connection, yeah, North I've Carolina got connection. I've got one of those. Washington's, but nope, can't see an Arizona connection. Sorry, Joe. Sorry, Joe. All right, we'll give Joe some time to mourn that fact uh, as we go to break. Then we'll be back to talk managers and tactics back soon. New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying a round can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, I said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who is taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees, period? I'm telling you, this one, it's a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Did you know that even if you have a 401k for retirement, you can still have an IRA? Robinhood has the only IRA that gives you a 3% boost on every dollar you contribute when you subscribe to Robinhood Gold. But get this, now through April 30th, Robinhood is even boosting every single dollar you transfer in from another retirement account with a 3% match. That's right, no cap on the 3% match. Robinhood Gold gets you the most for your retirement thanks to their IRA with a 3% match this offer is good through April 30th. Get started at Robinhood.com slash boost. Subscription fees apply. And now for some legal info. Claim as of Q1 2024 validated by Radius Global Market Research. Investing involves risk including loss. Limitations apply to IRAs and 401ks. 3% match requires Robinhood Gold for one year from the date of first 3% match. Must keep Robinhood IRA for five years. The 3% matching on transfers is subject to special terms and conditions. Robinhood IRA available to U.S. customers in good standing. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker. Dealer. Welcome back, Joe. Have you sufficiently mourned the lack of Arizona in this episode so far? It will continue throughout the rest of the episode, my mourning, that is. Um, but I guess the grieving process has begun. You know what you can use for your mourning? Brecky. <laughs> I knew you were going to throw that in there. I even considered making the joke myself and went, no. That's we're on the same page. <laughs> we're, we're World Cup ready. Uh, we all did the shoey when we were in New York for the men's World Cup. Uh, oh, for this yeah. one, should we have to do like Marmite on toast or Vegemite on toast in honor of Vegemite. New Zealand? I would rather do the one? I would rather do the shoey out of yep. Graham's used shoe. That than, is correct. I've still got the that. golden shoey. I've kept it. <sighs> he put it back on and he wore it on the plane. I still don't understand <laughs> how Graham is a functioning human. Joe Lowry, <laughs> tell me more about Canada. All right, so I'm going to run through their coach and their tactics. This Canada team are led by Bev Priestman, 37-year-old English manager. She was the youngest coach at the Olympics back in 2021. 
Canada won that tournament, as I mentioned earlier. Priestman goes way, way back, and I didn't know this until I started doing my research, with John Herdman, which kind of makes sense, at least in terms of their working relationship. But uh, when she was 12 years old, apparently she signed up for a futsal like coaching course, and she wanted to become a coach, I guess, at that point in time, that was being led and taught by John Herdman, who was a, a young university professor at that time. The details around this are very hazy, and I, I did go deeper than just Wikipedia on this, by the way, everybody. But it wasn't ever really fully clear anywhere. But, I mean, she's known John Herdman for a very, very long time. Coach Canada's U-17s and U-20s on the women's side and assisted Herdman with the women's national team before he then changed to coach the Canadian men's national team. Priestman was then an assistant to Phil Neville with England and then took the Canada job in 2020. So that's a little bit of, of the background on Priestman. Tactically, you know, Priestman's talked about before how she says, quote, I want my team to dominate with and without the ball. I'll ask the players to be brave. So one thing we know about Priestman is that really can throw out the tactical buzzwords. I'm really up there with the best of them. And I do appreciate that in any manager. You watch Canada against a bad team, and that totally holds true. You watch Canada against a good team, and not so much. That's really, I don't know if you guys find this in your research as you're watching clips and reading about these coaches. That really does seem to me to be a near constant with like 99% of the national teams on the women's side is a lot of them tend to be pretty pragmatic. Like there's such a wide talent disparity in Canada do have a lot of talent that against weaker opposition, they can go out there and control games against, you know, middle opposition that are fairly equal. We'll see maybe more end to end stuff, or we'll see different spells of possession being traded back and forth. And when Canada's playing the United States, all of a sudden their desire to be brave kind of goes out the window and they start to try to defend. Right. So we're going to see a lot of tactical variety from Canada. I think they have, more attacking talent than anybody else in this group. So we will see them, you know, be effective and, and control the ball in stretches, but they'll also be pragmatic and drop defensively and play over the top at times. They're not always the most organized team. Uh, they had real trouble thinking back a year ago against the women's national team, the U.S. women's national team, excuse me. They had real trouble against the U.S. in that game. Their rest defense and some of their, their transition moments were just completely scattered, and they could not control the flow of that game, even though the U.S., I don't think, were even near their best in that final win either. Uh, recently for Canada against France, uh, back in April, it was a 2-1 loss. They used a nominal 4-3-3 in the attack with Christine Sinclair as a number nine, and then two kind of inside forwards off of her. But It's also kind of a 4-4-2 diamond because Sinclair is in this free attacking role. I'll talk more about her momentarily, but... Defensively, it was a 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2 diamond press, depending on where Sinclair was positioned. So they're fluid. They're flexible. They've used 4-2-3-1s before. Uh, I think we'll see some of that and maybe some of that 4-3-3 slash 4-4-2 diamond shape that, again, you know, kind of pivots based off of where Christine Sinclair is. I've been pretty underwhelmed by them tactically in a lot of different ways, despite the individual talent. The midfield spot, for me, deeper down in midfield is a massive question mark. The center backs haven't impressed me with their distribution or their ability to control balls in their area. I I have concerns about Canada in the midfield, similar to yesterday on, on the show. How I talked about with Norway, and Graham, you mentioned this as well, some of their challenges deeper down in midfield. Canada's got real talent and match winners at both ends, uh, in, in both boxes to be particular. I'll get to those specifics you know, when we talk about key players, but there's at least some idea of what to expect from Canada. A lot of it will depend on who they're playing on any given match day. So, Joe, with a little bit of trepidation about Canada heading into this one, uh, Goss, any of that for you with Australia and Tony Gustafsson? 
There is for a lot of fans and there is for a ton of media in Australia. I actually think the way I walked away from the research as well as what I take from, I think, the pieces in the team, I don't think they have that same concern. So I talked a little bit about the fact that Australia auto qualified because they were hosts Um, in the episode we did yesterday. I also mentioned that the head coach for the Philippines national team was the head coach of the Australian national team heading towards the 2019 World Cup. He was let go for unknown reasons still. And um, there was pretty uh, there was a lot of pieces in the team that were upset about that. So Tony Gustafsson came in in sort of an awkward spot. He is named you probably know very well. He was Jill Ellis's assistant almost her entire time as U.S. Women's National Team Manager. He also worked under Pia Sundhug at times as well. So he was around the U.S. throughout this golden period. He has won multiple World Cups as an assistant coach, Olympics as well. As a head coach, most of his experience has come in his native Sweden, both on the women's and men's side uh, in club setups. So he was, I believe, the youngest manager ever to lead a team to a final on the women's side in the first division. Uh, He has coached on the men's side as well most recently. So after leaving as an assistant with the U.S., he coached. He was coaching club side as a head coach in Sweden. Then he got the Australia job. He finished out the season and then joined over for Australia. And I think, personally, that he's had the right idea, which was depth was the biggest issue for Australia. They had, like Joe just talked about and has talked about now twice, top-end talent. Sam Kerr is obviously an elite uh, attacking player. There are multiple pieces in this team that we'll get into as we go along that are arguably the best in the world at their position and can challenge at that level. They have struggled, though, historically in tournaments. They have very little success. They made it to the 2021 um, bronze medal match where they lost against the U.S. That was their one piece of success at a tournament. And I think a lot of it came down to the fact that they couldn't create the platform for their star players to perform and they couldn't cover for injuries, which will obviously always happen as you go into a tournament. It's still unsure exactly how they'll set up. Most likely a 4-4-2, potentially a 4-2-3-1. If you want to just go back two minutes and re-listen to Joe's thing, they don't love to be in possession. If they are, they can create chances, but they don't prefer it. It's not how they choose to set up. Two strong banks of four defensively. They don't press really high and when they do press high it's more to funnel the ball long balls into areas they can win rather than to try and pick it off high up the field and create chances but they're really good on the counter press and they have two of the best fullbacks in the world they might have the best pairing at this world cup so when they are in possession they'll move their lines pretty slowly up the field they'll bring those fullbacks into the attack they'll pull the wide players in as second and third forwards And if they lose the ball in dangerous situations, everyone will counter press hard to sort of cover for the fullbacks being high up the field. And they're pretty good at being dangerous off that because they have players centrally who can win their duels, whether it's aerial or on the ground, almost uh, almost all the time. And then they can turn it into chances. So it is, as we've sort of talked about, going to be an interesting tournament for them because as hosts, there's going to be a level of expectation sometimes to carry the game. That's not where they're at their best, and that's where they've struggled. They've struggled for results over the last year, but some of those games have come without their top five or six players being in the team. And the quotes coming out of um, those star players, Sam Kerr, but especially Caitlin Ford, when the team was announced was, this is the deepest team in Australian history, and this is the most talent, and it's the most prepared we've ever been. And they sort of leaned on, 
Sam Kerr and Ford debuted as teenagers back in 2011. And they sort of understood the role at the time, which is the stars are going to get all the focus. How can we help? They said the players now that are coming into the team, seven debutantes at this World Cup, they're all more prepared. They're more capable than they were 10 years ago, as well as Kerr and Ford and all these other players set up a pretty good space to, if you do your job, the team is good enough to win. All right. Uh, I'm aware that there are 66 deadly species in Australia. I'll add Sam Kerr to make that 67 because she is rather deadly herself. Let's talk Nigeria, shall we? Uh, Their coach, who we all knew was going to be their coach, is Randy Waldrum. Everybody have Randy Waldrum as the coach of Nigeria heading into this one? Well, you might have because he was supposed to be in 2017. Uh, He was hired as an advisor was supposed to be named their director, and then, according to him, uh, he did not hear from them for three months, so he chose to take the job at Pitt. He's been a college coach uh, previously. Then he was with the Houston Dash for a bit. He was with Trinidad and Tobago for a bit. Now he is with uh, Pitt uh, and also coaching Nigeria because they went ahead and made him official in October of 2020. Uh, And that has been good and bad. Good in that they've qualified, uh, though they have qualified to every World Cup, so that is... A low bar, I would say, bad in that they did so by finishing fourth, and they have looked sort of uninspiring since then. His assistants, I believe, were appointed by the Nigerian Federation, a federation, I should note, who routinely don't play uh, players on the men's or women's side, uh, but then I think there, there have been multiple head coaches in Nigeria's history who won the African Cup of Nations and never got paid or got paid a fraction of what they were supposed to. So there is a lot of, if not corruption, then at the very least uh, instability when it comes to the Nigerian FA. But I think Waldrum hasn't really helped himself. It does seem like he has had some run-ins with some players and has allowed the locker room to divide over the captaincy issue uh, because you have two pretty prominent players uh, who both were vying for that spot, uh, and only one of them has maybe come away with it, uh, much to the chagrin of the other. Uh, Onami Ebi is the captain. She's 40 years old. This, if she plays, will be her sixth World Cup. That is not a small number. Uh, so she is very much the veteran. But then Asisato Shwala, uh, the forward for Barcelona, is one of their most important players, has been one of their most important players, but has had issues with the coach, issues with the FA, has skipped friendlies, allegedly. She would say she was injured. The Federation would say she chose not to play in them. Some of her teammates took issue with that. So there's infighting on that front. Uh, there's infighting about the captain's armband. There's uh, some questions about the coach, some questions about the Federation. And it all leads to just a very negative feeling around this team, who uh, my guess would play some version of a 4-2-3-1. But one of the criticisms of uh, Mr. Waldrum is that he has tried lots of different things to get as many players as possible into the team. Uh, that would include playing uh, uh, Ashley Plummer, uh, who was a left back, then a midfielder, then a center back, then I believe played forward against Mexico. She was kind of all over the place. He responded, and I think this is a fair point. I've heard the criticism as well about some players playing out of position, but you have to understand that we have to manage our personnel optimally. Just using the right wing position, for example, we have Francisca Ordega that plays there for her club. We have Tony Payne that plays there for her club. We have Rashidat Ali that plays there for her club. And Michelle Olozier also plays there for her club, which means he's tried wingers as forwards and wingers as central midfielders and on occasion wingers as fullbacks. And so though you have that 4-2-3-1 shape, sometimes it's more of a 4-3-3. 
it's lots of personnel popping up in different areas. Normally, I would attribute that to the people who build the lineups for Soccerware, FOTMOB, maybe just sort of taking their best guess or maybe all pulling from the same aggregator. But to watch the games, nah, they're playing in a bunch of different positions and it's really difficult to know who exactly is going to go where. So I think with this team, you have roughly a back four. You're going to have probably a 4-2-3-1. You're going to have a central striker that I don't know is going to be Asisato Shwala, who is their best goal scorer and scores goals in uh, in plenty, like plentiful numbers for Barcelona, but hasn't been doing that for Nigeria. So I think we might get some different players in those spots. All of that building up to a team that have a ton of potential, have a ton of ability, but I do not think are going to be able to harness it in this World Cup. Uh, so that would be where I am on our on Nigeria's manager and tactics. We'll talk about some more players on a maybe more individual basis here uh, next segment. But for now, we have one more team to get to. Graham, tell us about Ireland, their coach, their players, their tactics, and hopefully a bit more optimism than I had for Nigeria. <laughs> okay, so Vera Pau is the Republic of Ireland head coach for this World Cup. She has been in the role since 2019 when... The FA of Ireland made some sweeping changes to the women's game and, and, and the national team. In 2017, the Republic of Ireland women's team, they went on strike over pay and facilities and all the usual stuff that has depressingly become a common story in women's football over the last few years. Uh, hopefully there will be some change across the board. There has been change with Ireland uh, most more recently. Pow's appointment from the Houston, Houston Dash, where she was previously in employment, was kind of part of that change. It was a sign of the renewed commitment to the Irish women's national team at that time. Now, I'm going to provide two contradictory, easy for me to say, perceptions of Vera Pau here. I watched a few interviews with her in my research for this, and to me in that moment, she seemed to have a kind of good mix of empathy and assertiveness when she spoke to the media after announcing her squad and was talking about players that she had to leave out, some injured players that I'll come on to later. She um, had to compose herself before the interview to kind of wipe away some tears, which I think shows the the impact of leaving some players out of the out of the roster, out of the squad, and also the connection that she has with a lot of this team. Um, but when she was facing the media a few months ago and was facing questions about her conservative tactics, which I will detail um, a little bit later on, she gave like a fierce defense of herself and really hit back. And in that moment, I thought that was like a good place for her to be as a character. However, since I did my research, um, The Athletic <laughs> published a report about Pau, which claimed she created, quote, a culture of fear while at the Houston Dash. There's quotes from unnamed players in there about how she was abusive and inappropriate. I don't think there has been a statement, at least at the time of recording, I don't think there has been a response or a statement from Vera Pau or the FA of Ireland about this story. I would expect there probably will be a response before the tournament, if only because Vera Pau and our players will be facing the media and press conference situation. So I wait to see what she has to say about that. So that is a big old question mark over Vera Pau heading into this World Cup. It's fair to say, tactically, the Republic of Ireland won't be the most attack-minded team at this World Cup. And Pau, as I kind of referenced there, has faced some criticism for this, um, even from the Irish media. But I do think it has helped her maximise the talent in her squad because... Um, Ireland have a few excellent players, I'll list them uh, later on, but not a huge amount of depth throughout their team. 
In terms of the shape, um, Pau almost, almost always uses a 5-4-1 shape with a back three that then turns into 3-4-2-1 when in the attacking phase of the game. This is a team that will use a low defensive block. They will look to stay compact. They will look to close up the gaps and, and the half spaces and make sure that any shots they face are from low value areas. I remember this from the Scotland game where Scotland have a couple of really good attackers in Caroline Weir and Aaron Cuthbert. We barely got near their goal apart from a penalty that we missed um, and that was due to the excellent defence from Ireland closing down those spaces, good organisation. In, in the attacking side, on the attacking side, they will play a direct game when playing out. They don't need to have a lot of possession. That isn't their game. So Pau, she will push the wingbacks high up the pitch and she'll push the wingers inside to the point that they become kind of dual number 10, supporting the, the central striker. They don't tend to commit many players forward to the attack because while those moments of transition help them create and they do look to the wide areas as funnels into the attack, it also leaves them potentially exposed at, at the back. And Pau has spoken about how she, she doesn't like that. So it is a sort of defence-first approach, even though I'll come on to some individual talents later on, but they do have quality in midfield that helps them. It almost acts as a valve into the final third, but I wouldn't in any way, shape or form, say they are an attack-minded team. The Republic of Ireland did play two games against the, the US fairly recently. There was rotation between the two, just the, the way those friendly matches worked. The first game was quite conservative by design or not so the US had 70% possession in that game the second game I think Ireland did a better job of controlling the ball it was pretty even in terms of possession so I am hoping that Ireland will have that sort of toggle at this tournament that they will use their strength in midfield to control some games maybe not the the game against uh, Canada or, or, or Australia potentially against Nigeria but in the biggest matches, in that opening game against Australia, I do think they are going to revert to default and use what has worked for them to date. All right. Uh, I appreciate that, Grant. That was very, very comprehensive about Ireland. Uh, we're going to get into players and some, some specific predicting in the final segment. First, one more break. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Shopify, who would like to remind you that not everyone can be Erling Holland or Harry Kane. I would say only Erling Holland and Harry Kane can be Erling Holland and Harry Kane. But more to the point, not everyone can score the number of goals that those two score. Not everyone can set the goal scoring record. Sometimes you've got to be the teammate. Sometimes you've got to be the assists uh, person. You've got to be Kieran Trippier or Kevin DeBarna. You've got to spread the ball around. You've got to help facilitate that attacking play and those goals to help get the results you want. Because you need that perfect teammate, and when you need a perfect teammate when it comes to growing your business, Shopify has you covered. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. That feels like a good stage to be at. Shopify is there to help you grow along the way. How do they do that? Well, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So you don't have somebody kind of following you around the online store just saying, can I help you, can I help you, can I help you? Nobody needs that in real life or online, but Shopify's AI gets the job done. And that is a very unique aspect of Shopify that no matter how big your business is, and that's something I really appreciate, you can be a, a podcast just starting up, a podcast that's been here for a while, or a business that actually makes money. Either way, uh, Shopify is going to help you because that's what they are all about. 
Sign up for just $1 per month uh, trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Uh, one more time, go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back. Joe Lowry, let's talk about Canada's most important players, the players you're most excited to keep an eye on uh, until they're not paid by the Federation, and then there's a, a whole issue there. Yeah, that uh, I think we're living that reality right now <laughs> currently, Taylor. Uh, only the preliminary roster so far for Canada. The full one will be revealed on July 9th, but they've got a 25-player preliminary roster already out, so we're only looking at two cuts there. Basically, the core of this group is already known. And whenever you're talking about Canada still, I think the first player that warrants discussion is Christine Sinclair. Midfielder, attacking midfielder, plays as a left-sided number eight, like a free eight in a three-player midfield for the Portland Thorns. Usually plays as either a playmaking number nine or just a straight-up number 10 for Canada at the international level. 40 years old is a genuine legend. Does anybody... I, I did a guess on the last show that didn't go so well, like a little guessing no, game. I kind of want to try again. It. No, it's okay. It's okay, guys. Maybe maybe this one will be better. Does anybody want to guess how many caps Christine Sinclair has? Anybody? I'll do Price is Right style. If you go over, you're out. Um, go I'm going to guess one, 171. Okay. Graham, I didn't hear you. Sorry, I over-talked you. 180. Okay. Taylor? Oh, I am confident she has the most of maybe any player ever, like or close to it. I want to say she's over 300. Taylor, I will give you the win, even though you didn't cite a specific number. 301. Three, 323 wow. caps. Good go. job, Taylor Rockwell. Wow. You're welcome on stage. I kind of just um, thought she had guess. more goals than games. 
And I, she's at like no. 180 something on goals, right? She's at 190 goals. Okay. 190 international goals, which is the what? highest number of any player <laughs> so in international competition history. So she scored more goals than any women's national team player for any country in international competitions. And the same goes for the men's side, more than any of these folks. Taylor, come up on stage. We'll get you guessing some common grocery item prices as soon as we can. Uh, she is uh, milk, go. <laughs> she is a ridiculously talented player, still a regular starter and a key force in the attack for this Canada team. Uh, started two of three games in the She Believes Cup. That was back in February and started Canada's most recent game in their last World Cup tune-up against France back on April 11th. She's still a key cog here, absolutely. And she is still dynamic in the attack, less so with her movement, but more with how she moves the ball. Her quality, the weight of her passes, her vision, her timing, all of those things are just as, as good as they possibly get in this game. She is certainly someone to watch. I, I think we'll see some of her both as a, a number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 and some of her as maybe the, the highest central attacking player with two kind of inside forwards running off of her. We'll see what that looks like down at this World Cup. Other key players. I mentioned earlier that there are match winners in both of the boxes. And Sinclair with her movement and how she arrives uh, inside the box after a lot of the hard work's been done, often by her. She is like that player inside the 18 and inside Canada's own 18. That player is Kaylin Sheridan, 28-year-old goalkeeper for the San Diego Wave. So often we don't talk about goalkeepers when it comes to analyzing soccer because it almost feels like they're playing a totally different sport. Uh, it kind of looks like Sheridan's playing a different sport than the rest of the goalkeepers. So she's been one of the best shot stoppers in the NWSL for years now, was good last year for San Diego Wave in their expansion season, has been solid this year as well. Their manager, Casey Stoney, who's quite well known in the, the women's game, calls her the best goalkeeper in the world, which, I mean, you kind of have to. If you have a good goalkeeper and you're their manager, you kind of have to say that. But she's got a real case to be that. She's somebody that even though I, I have questions about Canada tactically and and they don't really have an identity, and I'm not convinced the midfield is very strong. Sheridan is someone that can erase those issues because of how good she is in between the posts. So she's certainly a player to watch. Jesse Fleming, 25-year-old midfielder for Chelsea. Very consistent for Chelsea this past season en route to their WSL title. At 1,200 minutes, three goals. Can create a little bit, can score a little bit, can progress the ball, can play as... You know, I uh, can play a number of different roles in midfield. I'll just put it that way. Either as half of a double pivot, which I think we could see her in that spot, or higher up you know, the field a little bit more on that right side. I like Fleming a lot. Good energy, really good right foot. One other player to watch, somebody that I'll, that I'll admit I wasn't terribly familiar with before starting to do this preview, is Julia Grosso. 22-year-old midfielder, plays for Juventus uh, in Italy. Totally bossed Italy this past season. Like, just completely dominated that league as a, a number eight of sorts, but she can play a little bit deeper as a number six. Clean left foot, sees the game well, moves quickly, really talented on the ball, good ball progressor. I think she could be a breakout star. If Canada make a run, especially, I think she could be somebody that we talk a lot more about going forward than we have right now. Again, that's Julia Grosso. I mentioned Grosso and Fleming, though. Like I don't really know what this midfield for Canada is going to look like. Priestman has used a number of different options and even shapes in recent games. It could be a Grosso-Fleming double pivot, which I think would be more attack-minded and, and certainly more fun to watch. It could be Quinn and, and Schmidt in that area. Like, there's lots of different ways and different ways that Priestman can mix and match these players. I don't know that any of them are high-level defenders, and I don't think any of them cover ground at a truly elite level. 
and there's always going to be that little extra burden because Sinclair doesn't run as well as she used to. There are challenges there. But man, like I said earlier, like real talent on both ends. The, the one omission really from this squad, even though we're still at 25 people instead of 23, is Janine Becky, 28-year-old attacker, mostly a winger, but has played in a number of different roles as well for club and country. She tore her ACL in March. She would have been a starter for this team. Without her, they lack a lot of really obvious first-choice winger types, which is why I think we might end up seeing some of that diamond shape or those inside forwards with you know, Jordan Heidema and, and others that could Leon who could really just be on the wing, but only kind of in name and much more, you know, drifting to central spaces. We'll see what all that looks like when the World Cup starts. All right. So Joe gives us Canada. Goss, tell us about Australia and their key players. Do you just want to spend 10 minutes talking about Sam Kerr? Or are we got to talk about other I just wrote too? in my notes, Sam Kerr, duh. That's how I started <laughs> key players. Um, I think it's really tough sometimes. I'm glad Joe did it correctly there with Sinclair, where it's like, we all know her, and then you're like trying to put it into context, and there really is no context. She's got 63 goals in her Australian career. She is first all time, both on the men's and women's side. She passed Tim Cahill last year during the Asian Champions League when they beat Indonesia 18 to zero in that game. Um, I don't know how the English media covered that's a covered lot. That that's either, a lot of goals. So I can't I can't help you with that one. But it was a lot of goals. She scored a lot of them. Um, she has one. Two golden boots in England, four champion, four league titles, three FA Cups. She's won pretty much everything except a trophy with the national team uh, so far. It was her lowest scoring season in the last eight years this year. And one of the concerns is people it found ways with Chelsea to disconnect her from the team. And while she can drop in and play, it is not maybe her best attribute. And the question for Australia has been, how do they set her up best? And what they've come around to is pretty much a 4-4-2 with Mary Fowler as the second forward. Fowler's 20 years old. She just joined Man City this year where she didn't play as much probably as they had hoped. But she comes from Montpellier over the last two years where she scored a ton of goals and was a full-time starter in France. And it's going to fall on Fowler a lot to drop in and connect, to sort of read the gaps around Kerr to make teams hurt because they're sending more bodies with Kerr when she drops in or when she's trying to stretch the field and Fowler's just 20 years old and she's sort of part of this new generation that's come in and brought a ton of energy to this team. I talked about Caitlin Ford uh, previously, one of the leaders of this team, uh, over 198 caps in her career and was young player of the World Cup in 2011 when she made her debut that I was talking about and obviously now a ton of experience going forward. Probably the strength of this team is fullback. Ellie Carpenter on the right side, Steph Catley on the left. Carpenter starts for Lyon. She was voted as best 11 in France this year. Catley not starting full-time for Arsenal, but has off and on. And so their ability on the ball and sort of what they bring to the team and the way they can open teams up is massive. Um, And Carpenter is part of what is a long list of players who are all injury concerns. And almost every single one of them has made it back. And I think that sort of gives you the feeling around this team coming into this of like, sometimes it feels like everything's coming together. So Kaya Simon, who plays with Spurs, one of their best attacking players, coming off an ACL tear. It sounds like she she is on the roster. It doesn't sound like she's capable of starting, but they think she can make an impact off the bench. The big miss for them is uh, Elise Kalan Knight who is, would have been a starting center mid and a set-piece specialist. So in her place, uh, Katrina Gorey has taken over, who just returned from maternity leave. So she's been in the last two camps. 
she's taken over the role as that starting center mid doing a lot of the dirty work behind the three or four more attacking players. And it's been a huge boost to the team and starting to turn around results with the wins over New Zealand, the strong at time performances against Spain and England. Uh, And then everyone else that was an injury concern has made their way back. So Ellie Carpenter came off an ACL tear. Then she went out of the champions league final with an injury. She's able to make it back. She seems like she'll be fine as well as Alana Kennedy at center back. Um, There's a lot of dangerous pieces in this team. And as I talked about, this is the deepest team that Australia's had. Goalkeeper is a question mark, but not a concern. Like there's multiple options there. Uh, Center back has been a question mark alongside Kennedy, but it feels like now there are a few more options because uh, Tony Gustafsson has blooded more players over the last year. And a lot of those players showed that they were capable of playing at the level. So now you throw back in a Kerr and a Ford and a Carpenter and you make those players' lives a lot easier. So I think it's pretty exciting to see what they can do. All right. Uh, getting more and more excited about this group. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about Nigeria and try to get excited about them. Uh, I'm going to start in goal. Uh, as I said, I'm leaning towards a 4-2-3-1 for them. Uh, in goal would be uh, Chiamaka Nadozie, plays for Paris FC. Uh, only 22 years old, but very much an established goalkeeper. Uh arguably uh, the best goalkeeper in Africa and one of the uh, top goalkeepers at her position, I would say. Uh, Very good in the air, comes off her line pretty aggressively, which can be problematic, also good in distribution. Uh, The defense, I think, is going to be pretty fascinating. I I, I mentioned Anome Ebi, the captain, 40 years old, who you would expect to start, uh, has many, many caps for uh, for the Nigerian national team, but is at an advanced age, and there have been other less experienced defenders who have been getting caps in those recent friendlies that they have been winning. Uh, Olu Watosin uh, Demihen uh, is a 21-year-old center back who could start at the left center back spot, and then uh, Osinachi Ohale uh, would be the other center back that could start at the right center back spot. Uh, neither one of them have... Well, I guess Ohale is 31, so has plenty of experience. But uh, Demihan is more the uh, the rookie coming through, is how I would explain that one. But it's sort of the way this team is, is that you have very strong uh, talents and very established talents, but then question marks about whether or not they're going to play. Asisato Shwala would be the prime example of that. Uh, she, at 28 years old, still very much in the prime, playing for Barcelona, not always a regular starter, but very much a capable goal scorer, and yet for this team has not been playing, uh, feels very much on the outs. I mentioned the captaincy issue earlier. And so if she cannot play, then you're most likely looking at uh, Gotham's in the NWSL, uh, Ifioma Onumanu, Uh, starting up top, where she has been playing for Gotham as a substitute and not scoring this season. I think she's only gotten like 250 minutes so far in this NWSL campaign. So for her to be starting is good for her, good for Gotham fans, and maybe ends up being good for Nigeria. But to not have Oshwala, this sort of uh, talismanic player who can be such a huge difference maker, definitively involved in this team, I think is an automatic blow. One player that I would encourage people to keep an eye on is Tony Payne, who's a player that I mentioned playing a variety of different uh, positions for this Nigeria team. But a lot of that is because she can. She's a 28-year-old midfielder slash attacker for Sevilla. She's been there since 2018, I believe, before that Ajax. And she 
is very good at pretty much everything she does. She's very good on the dribble. She's got the speed, but she has the intelligence to read the game, the decision-making to find the sort of cutback pass through to two to, to defenders to an open teammate versus shooting from a tight angle. She'll take people on 1v1, and she'll try to create. So I think she can be a fairly electrifying presence for this Nigeria team that doesn't have as many of those as I would have liked. Uh, they've got plenty of creative players who want the ball and will carry it forward, but I don't know if as a unit they're going to have the attacking prowess that I have kind of come to expect from Nigeria, at least in the Cup of Nations. Um, one other player to mention would be midfielder Ngozi Okobi, uh, who is left off the 23-player squad. She's 29 years old. Uh, she's been one of their better players in the midfield. She provides a lot of creativity, uh, oftentimes playing as that number 10, sometimes playing as a number 8. But she was left off and did an interview where she was basically told by the coach, like, I don't rate you. I don't think you're good enough. And she felt like she wasn't given a chance. She felt like she wasn't called into enough camps. And that seems to be sort of par for the course for Waldrum, that he he's kind of had to make decisions quickly. I think if you wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, it doesn't seem like there's been much in the way of time for him to go over and evaluate the local leagues, uh, when he was initially supposed to be hired, it was a gentleman's agreement without any sort of paperwork. He was never even in the country to negotiate or to be part of the conversations. So I think his timeline has been expedited and sort of forced to some extent. But there are other instances uh, like bringing in a 19-year-old uh, midfielder, Deborah Abiodun, which is, you know, you're bringing a 19-year-old. You're giving her an opportunity. That's great. She's a domestic player. Who's then going to play for him next season at Pitt? And then there's the question of, like, did she only get called in because he recruited her? Did she only go to the school because he would put her on the national team? It's led to a lot of questions about this team, questions that they didn't need that are basically distractions heading into the World Cup. So though there is talent there, this all plays into my idea that, my idea that I don't think Nigeria are going to be uh, a particularly successful team this time around, though we shall see. Uh, so those are a few of the names to watch or one that you won't be able to watch for Nigeria. Graham, uh, please round it out. Tell us more about Ireland. So Ireland are certainly, it sounds like they're more settled than your Nigerian team. There's a lot going bit. on uh -huh. there. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, earlier in my preview, Ireland have been building towards this. So their starting lineup is fairly set at this point. In terms of individuals, they are strongest in central midfield. I have to start there. Katie McCabe is certainly a star name. She has been Arsenal's uh, one of Arsenal's best players for a number of seasons now. She won their Player of the Year award this season, and many expect her to have a big World Cup for Ireland. Powell will actually probably use McCabe in, a, in an advanced position where she has the freedom to drift out to the left but also get in behind the central striker. So McCabe is at a level for this Ireland team where essentially she can play where she wants and uh, Pau sees her influence being most uh, worthy in maybe a little bit more of an advanced position that, than she plays at club level. Denise O'Sullivan is another high-quality midfielder in this Ireland team. She plays for North Carolina Courage. She is a, a true playmaker. Anything that Ireland creates tends to come from O'Sullivan, or at least the move originates at O'Sullivan. She is often the pass before the pass, and she uses the ball fantastically for this team. She is the one who will play through the opposition press and, and get Ireland turned and into the attacking third of the pitch. Uh, Sinead Farrelly will likely play as the right wing-back in Ireland's team. She made her debut for Ireland in a match against the, uh, the US earlier this year, those matches that I mentioned earlier. 
Of course, Farrelly played for the US at youth level and currently plays for Gotham FC. She was also a victim of the, the Paul Riley abuse scandal. And so to see her at a World Cup and be a key player for this Ireland team, I think that'll be a real triumph. And it is a storyline of this Ireland team. I remember when she made her debut against the US in those games, that was a, a, a big storyline. So there's a lot of people pulling for Sinead Farrelly at this World Cup. In defence, Ireland do have a lot of experience. Uh, Diane Caldwell, Louise Quinn and Neve Fahey, they have over 500 caps between them. As I said, Taylor, when I introduced these players, this is quite a set, settled squad at this time. Uh, Aoife Mannion would have been part of that defensive group, but she is out through injury. And then you have Courtney Brosnan, who plays for Everton as the first choice goalkeeper. Ireland hope, hoping that Brosnan won't have to do too much at this tournament, but if she has to pull off a save, she is capable of doing that. She is a good, uh, a good NWSL level goalkeeper. Megan Campbell, who plays for Liverpool, is a second defensive figure after Mannion, who would have been an important figure for Ireland had it not been for injury. And I mentioned earlier that um, Vera Pau um, looked quite emotional at, at having to leave a couple players out of her squad. Those are the two players that you would identify, Megan Campbell and, and Aoife Mannion. They would have been key players for Ireland at this tournament. That is a sore one that they are watching from home, that they are not involved. But otherwise, it is a fairly full squad in terms of the first choice players being available. And... This is where there's a difference between the two teams that I previewed so far. New Zealand, when I looked at their conservative, compact approach and the players that they had, it didn't really feel like it was a great fit for the players that they have. It didn't feel like they executed their game plan very well very often. With this Ireland team, while there are similarities in terms of the approach, this is the way that they've played over a number of years. And there's something about them... I don't want to bring in intangibles like fight and spirit, but it's kind of unavoidable. Joe unavoidable. What Joe, Joe's favourite words. More, it's more, kind of unavoidable more. with this Ireland team. You will hear it a lot over the course of the tournament. So there is something in it. And I do think they will be competitive because of, not just because of those star players, but because of the way that they have been moulded over time. Uh, XF is expected fight. Is that right? Sure, it goes like this. Expected goals, expected dog, expected yeah, fight. I was going to say, expected dog has to be higher on the list. <laughs> <laughs> the true analytics nerds are di oh, diving into that. That makes me happy. That makes me very happy, even if it makes Joe... I, Joe doesn't get furious, I think. Miffed? Does miffed, get miffed? miffed is good. Yeah. That's a, that's the yeah. perfect word, Taylor. Nice word. Yeah. But Joe, I would say... <laughs> Slightly bothered. With national teams, it probably matters more than with clubs. What matters specifically? I think they're. I think national teams are less tactically astute because they don't have enough time together. They don't build enough of a system. Yeah, and so the delta in tactical idea and flexibility. And nice IQ use of delta. Is, nice use of delta. Thank I love you. That. Keep going. It's probably lower, and therefore, yeah. just like like, let's talk about this World Cup. Teams are traveling to Australia, and New Zealand. Right? Like you're so far away from everyone. You're together for a long time. You've been working towards this for years. It does feel like. We're going to know like two weeks into this, I think teams that are out, yeah. you're going to hear a lot of the stories of like this coach wasn't, the atmosphere wasn't good. That's the point I was going to make is it's related to buy-in, mm -hmm. right? So the difference between New Zealand and Ireland, I know there's all this other stuff about Vera Pau, but from what I can tell with this Ireland team, there is buy-in with what she's what? doing. And yeah. With New Zealand, with Klimkova, I didn't get that sense at all. And so that's reflected in the types of performances you get. It's, it's also the case that like, Ireland doesn't have an ASU striker on their squad, right? I, actually, I'm looking at the team right now. I know they have a Florida State University <laughs> forward. But, like, the, the biggest difference, 
I, I think there could be a difference in mentality and buy-in. I think those are real things that have a real impact. They're just impossible to measure, mm-hmm. which makes it a little bit tricky to talk about them because I think that means we naturally default to, to elevating them to an important level that they don't really have. But the biggest difference between Ireland and New Zealand is that Ireland's just better at soccer. Yeah. Like, they just yeah, have yeah. better players, right? So I just want to make sure that when you know, New Zealand are eliminated and Ireland, you know, maybe, maybe sneak into the round of 16, we're not like... Oh, it's just about their their ex dog. When in reality, you know, there there's more to this than just the mentality side. But yeah, the mentality side is totally a real thing. I'm I'm all about that. I now hope we get an actual fight, so it becomes unavoidable <laughs> that Joe has to mention Ireland's fight and getting them through to the next round. Sure, let's do it. Uh, I'm sure Joe will break it down uh, with like dry analytics and a key explanation of where critical <laughs> points were landed, uh, which I guess will take him into his career as an MMA analyst, which probably also pays pretty well, Joe. So you've got it covered from every angle. Let's see if we all have it covered from the very specific prediction angle to round out the episode. Joe, I'm going to need a specific prediction about the Canadians. Okay, I've got two, uh, and, and I don't know if... We're going to be tracking these GSP. I don't know if we're tracking these or not or what the deal is. So I'm happy to just pick whichever one turns out to be right of these. But uh, my first one's a little soft, but it is that I will like kind of rave about what Julia Grosso brings at least once throughout this group stage and hopefully loop one of you guys in with me. Like I want to rope one of you guys in with me on the hype train. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about Grosso and I think this could be a, a big tournament for her as mentioned, but because I can technically control parts of that which i you know maybe make it such that the bsp council doesn't approve that kind of thing i don't know we haven't talked about it i want to add in even at 40 years old christine sinclair will lead canada in key passes at this tournament she's she is their attacking linchpin this isn't just like oh i know christine sinclair's name so let's talk about her for the majority of this time she is she is still sure, the sure. talus sure, player sure, sure. for this team like she is still absolutely their leader uh, so i think she will lead this team in key passes she's the uh the, the through ball threader, she's the she's that person for Canada, and we're going to see that at this World Cup. Yeah. When we did that big thing episode about the situation with the Canada FA uh, and players testifying in front of the government, Christine Sinclair, always front and center, always doing the interviews. Uh, they're doing uh, the testimony, very much a leader in that team. So I think you can't talk about this team without mentioning mentioning her at almost every interval. And there are situations in which that, that you can sort of air into – uh, that person only really researched the one name they knew. I don't know what sort of major broadcaster would do something like that for their previews. Uh, but with a team like Australia, like Sam Kerr is that player for them. With Canada, Christine Sinclair is that player for them. Yeah. So I think it makes a lot of sense, Joe, which, to have her as the kind of focal point of your prediction. Which just quickly before somebody else does their VSP. Like, it is a little problematic for Canada that they haven't really found another player who can do even some of what she does I mean yeah I guess Janine Becky can do a little bit of that and Jesse Fleming can do a little bit of that but it's not the same like no one obviously no one is going to approach her level because she is a generational talent in this game but it's not even like there's an obvious up-and-coming player that's going to start to take some of that responsibility like this is going to be Christine Sinclair's last World Cup it's her sixth like she's done this a lot Taylor's looking at me like, well, maybe not. And I guess you never know. know. (laughs) But like Canada should be concerned about how important Christine Sinclair still is to this team. I think that that's probably fair. I like those predictions, Joe. Uh, David Goss, what have you got for us? So to hammer home my thing, which is not that good, but I'm going to get there eventually. I just want to like. To hammer home my thing. Yeah. 
I just want to stress, <laughs> I think, how big a moment this is going to be for this sport in Australia. And I talked about it a little bit. The expectation is there'll be 80,000 fans at the opening game. And if you can hear the ambulance in the background, that's to confirm that as a specific fact. <laughs> um, at least there's not fireworks going off right now. There's going to be 80,000 fans. The uh, Australian Federation just opened a new training facility for the Matildas, not for the Australian FA. Like It is only for the women's national team as their home training base that obviously other people will use when the national team's not together. But that just, I think, sort of shows you where the sport is going. Uh, the Women's League, they added a team last year, a team this year. Another team's already slated to come in in two years, and the expectation is two more teams are going to be added to the first division in the next three years as well. They broke records at 2.2 million viewers for the uh, semifinals at the uh, at the Olympics in 2021. So I think this is going to be the storyline of the World Cup. It is going to be what a party this is, how big the sport has become, how big this women's national team is, where they've been voted over the last 10 years as the most popular sporting team in the country consistently. Uh, they've gotten behind their uh, a movement to sort of recognize First Nation, Nations and Indigenous people. Uh, they carry the First Nations flag out with them. When they come out for games, they hang it in the locker room. I think it might have something to do with their uh, armband, but that's, you know, we're talking about FIFA now, so it's obviously all going to go poorly. But FIFA has put together a board of um, women from for First Nations background who are helping advise on some of the things that the FIFA is going to try and do coming out of this tournament and where some of the money will go. So I just, I, I think the biggest star of this World Cup is going to be Australia and these players and these fans. And I think Sam Kerr is going to win the golden ball. And I know you said we can talk about the one players and should we or should we not? I don't think she'll win the golden boot because I don't think there's a team in this group that someone will score four goals against. And I think that will happen over the course of this tournament in other teams. But I think this team's going to at least make a semifinal. And I think the storyline coming Ooh. through that is going to be Sam Kerr carrying them at times, her being the big name, her being the star, this team being the emergent on the world stage at that level now for what will be sort of like a third time in five years where it will start to feel real and not like a flash in the pan. Uh, and I think she's going to be the name that walks away from that. So I think she's going to get voted as the top player. Guys, you do know that Sophia Smith exists, right? Or did that change recently? I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed by the guts of that. I didn't say change. golden ball, golden boot. I said golden ball. I, I know what you I said. I think Sophia yeah, Smith's going to eat. So I think she'll win that award. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. I, Maybe they'll here's the it. thing for the U.S. Unless they win, no one will win that award from that team, right? Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not so sure that there isn't a giant gap between Sophia Smith and every other women's national team player on the planet right now. Okay. But I mean, yeah, this we'll find out. I like your prediction. I just gutsy yeah. and I'm here for it. Yeah. I, and, and when you sort of try and guess through the schedule, which is really tough, if Australia wins this group, they have what could be a fairly comfortable road to at least make it to a semi. They would probably have to beat like a France and a Denmark to get there, which is not easy. But when you look at a World Cup, it's not easy. That's not as difficult a path as other teams that we're going to talk about as favorites going forward. I feel like you lost a little steam when you realized it was no. France. I feel like France <laughs> France hurts you a little no, bit. I mean, obviously, we talked to Herb last show. Anytime Herb's yeah. walking around, you're always going to yeah. be fearful. But it, by nervous, the way, I think that is... So I thought this was going to be the story for France four years ago. 
And I think it sort of fell apart. I thought they were going to be sold out stadiums, explode, win the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they were going to walk out with superstars that were global icons and they fell at the quarterfinal stage to the U.S. So it'll be interesting if it is Australia, France in Australia. Last piece, I think they're based out of Brisbane for the tournament and their second group stage game, their potential quarterfinal game. And I believe one of the semifinals are all in Brisbane as well. So they could, they won't even like have to travel inside Australia to play their games. That's the revenge on everyone else, isn't it? Everyone, every every other international game, they have to travel like half the yes. world to face anyone. They bring the world to them and they're like, we ain't moving. Hey, you guys thought Perth <laughs> was close because it's in Australia? Have fun flying for the rest yeah. of the night. <laughs> I like that you guys all have like optimistic and happy predictions about your teams because I don't. Uh, I have two. One sort of general prediction, one more specific. I'll start with the, the specific because it's a little bit more optimistic. Uh, Tony Payne, the player I mentioned before, a 28-year-old midfielder attacker, whichever she ends up playing. Uh, I think we'll have at least one sort of lengthy 1v1 battle. Uh, and Joe, I would I would equate it somewhat to the Musa maneuver where like, it's not quite a dribble, it's not quite a take on, it's not quite a 1v1, but it will be this sort of elongated period of time in which she has the ball and is trying to individually get by people. Sometimes she beats a player twice when she's doing this, uh, but I think she will probably have opportunities where she is trying to make something happen herself, and so I think that's where that uh, moment will arise. So it'll basically be enough time for the camera to like zoom in on her as she stands somebody up and then tries to beat them. That's the more optimistic. The less optimistic would be that I think Nigeria will finish bottom of the group despite being good enough to get out. And this is a talented group. There's a lot of talent there. I think Nigeria have that ability, and especially with some of the pressure on, say, Canada and Australia, like we've already talked about, I think this is a team that could sort of do some smash and grab moments and and get some goals. And I feel like the team... I can equate them with from the 2022 World Cup would be, strangely, Canada, a team that in spurts had moments of like, oh, wow, okay, there it is. They're going to score a second-minute goal against Croatia and be very, oh, no, they lost 4-1. Like, I I think that's what we are going to get in this tournament from Nigeria. David Goss agrees so much that he's texting while I'm talking. David, I really appreciate how (laughs) much you enjoy those predictions. That's what it is. There we is. Uh, There we is. Uh, Graham Ruthven, why don't you bring us home with your specific prediction? So my VSP Hurtful for Ireland at this World Cup is that <laughs> they will score at least one header from a set piece. Now, in outlining that VSP, I'm realizing that I did a really terrible job of providing the groundwork for this VSP. And this is something Joe and I spoke about on the Patreon episode that we did uh, this week about like having so many notes. Your prediction about a goes team. to another school. We wouldn't have heard of it. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got so many notes about a team that like articulating it all in a concise way is quite difficult. I should have mentioned that Ireland are good at set pieces. That is like a key thing about their game, how they score. I think uh, something, I've got the note here. Yeah, 35% of their goals through qualifying came from set pieces, from dead ball situations. And having watched quite a bit of them over the weekend, getting the big defenders up from the back for free kicks and corners is a really big part of their approach. So yeah, just to repeat, my my VSP is that they will score at least one header from a set piece of this tournament. Graham, I, Graham. I put a note in for my opening thing about Australia being host historically. I have now moved it down to put it in each section as I forget. And you, you <laughs> saying that, I'm like, oh yeah, I never even said it. So I get how you feel. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I always challenge. have one of those with every preview. Mine was that Nigeria have lots of U.S. eligible players who eventually chose to play for Nigeria. Tony Payne is one of them. Uh, but, Graham, I, I like that one. Do you feel like Ireland have potentially enough to get out of this group? Because I think I have them finishing second. Potentially, potentially. If I could have a, if I could steal a second VSP, which I don't know if that's allowed. Joel got a second VSP. Can I have Taylor one? did too yeah, after he mocked me for it. Let's not let oh, that, so did, let that yeah. slide. If I could have a second VSP, <laughs> it would be the Ireland's. All three of their final scores will be by the outcome will be a, like no more than a mm. margin of one goal. I don't think they're, I think they're going to be competitive in every match, even that opening game against Australia, which they will probably not see a lot of the ball in that game. I still think Australia winning 1-0 is like a pretty feasible outcome of that game. You look through their results, Ireland, and it's it's like binary. Like it's just 1-0, one 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. Like they are competitive in every match that they play, which leads me to my set-piece prediction. So it wouldn't surprise right. me if, yeah, they maybe get a draw against Australia in that opening game, even though that's a little bit unlikely and sort of edge their way out of this group by being competitive in all three games they play. I like that prediction a lot. I like this preview a lot, but I also know that David Goss has another call to get to in about five minutes. So does anybody want to talk for five more minutes about their team or anything else? I mean, I really push this. I found like a really tenuous Arizona connection that traces through (laughs) all of our teams that then connects to Goss. Map it thoroughly. It's, I mean, let's see here. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. Let's go. Oh, I thought you were really yeah, going to do so it. I was I, actually, I was you know who wasn't excited is David, as the, the smile slowly <laughs> stopped <laughs> being on his face. <laughs> uh, Goss, who I believe made himself a beverage before recording and then spilled it all over himself. You have been a professional today as you rebounded also, from that loss. Also, beverage sounds to, uh, fun and cool, like maybe a cocktail. It, yeah, it was, was a green, green smoothie that tasted gross. Yeah, big Ireland and it fun. smells even worse in my non-air-conditioned, humid apartment spilled across my rug, book, just and really, table. really flex that you read, but okay. Uh, yeah, no, we got it. <laughs> tapestry there. Thank you. Yeah, you yeah it's actually a coffee book. table book of like Brooklyn through the years. <laughs> like it's so <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> it's a coffee table book of Garfield. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Uh, we, I believe, have, lo- have lost Joe Lowry as oh. we say our goodbyes. Joe's had enough at, of this. Look at big man uh, Joe oh, Lowry. Yeah, just dropping, coming back on a whim. Joe Lowry, I think you're still here. Joe, thank you for returning to say goodbye. Yep, thanks, guys. This was fun. Uh, Graham Ruffin, thank you for never leaving. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Uh, And me, thank you for hosting. Listeners, thank you for listening. We will talk to you again with Group C on Friday. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.